Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. In this 10th and last episode of Series 5, we're going to be looking at personal liability, and that's individual accountability for everyone, compliance officers expressly included in financial services. Now, many jurisdictions have introduced personal accountability regimes, really with a core objective of seeking to drive better risk-aware behaviours by senior managers. Here in the UK, we have the Senior Managers and Certification Regime. In Australia, there is BEAR, that's B-E-A-R, Banking Executive Accountability Regime. In Hong Kong, there is the Manager in Charge Regime, the list and indeed the acronyms go on. In the US, the New York City Bar Association has raised very specific concerns about holding Chief Compliance Officers to account for failings or breaches, that don't result from their own wrongdoing. In other words, the concern there is that quite literally, US regulators are seen to be holding the CCO responsible for compliance, when elsewhere in the world, it is the relevant senior manager or chief executive who carries that responsibility and associated liability. As the New York City Bar put it, these career-ending enforcement actions discourage individuals from becoming or remaining compliance officers. Now, to put a bit more context around this issue, in our recently published cost of compliance report for 2022, nearly half, 45% of respondents expected the personal liability of compliance professionals would increase in the coming year. And in another stat, 56% thought that the regulatory focus on culture and conduct risk would increase the personal liability of senior managers. Now, to consider the continuing compliance challenges associated with personal liability, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Helen Chan and Lindsay Rogerson. Hello. Hi, Susanna. Thank you, ladies, so much for joining me as ever. Now, Helen, let's start with Asia. I mean, I know you may well go on to other jurisdictions, but... Practical reality in Asia, personal accountability regimes in full flow? So there's been quite a lot of developments um, in recent years in different jurisdictions in Asia on this topic. I'll just uh, run through region by region, starting with Hong Kong, since they were among the first adopters of a senior manager liability regime in the region. Uh, The manager in charge regime in Hong Kong has been in effect since 2017, so that's been quite a few years. Um, It's a disclosure-based framework where firms are required to submit org charts uh, to the Securities and Futures Commission, which identify responsible officers and senior managers in charge of critical functions in their organization. The definition of critical functions uh, includes front office and back office functions and includes support functions as well. Um, Firms also have an obligation to keep this information up to date anytime they have a personal change or some other type of change. So as a result, the SFC has a very clear roadmap um, from firms for who oversees what, and the regulator is very well prepared to assign liability to senior managers for any failings um, that occur within their function. 
Over the past few years, responsible officers and senior managers in Hong Kong have been banned or fined for compliance deficiencies within their departments. So this shows that the SFC is indeed using a lot of the information that it receives from firms under the manager in charge regime. Senior managers have been sanctioned for things ranging from failing to follow up on red flags for potential money laundering to failing to ensure that staff follow internal compliance policies. The SFC itself has been quite explicit in saying that the manager in charge regime is meant to drive better market behavior. And based on where they focus their enforcement, mainly on things like compliance deficiencies and lapses in managerial oversight, we can see that they are very concerned with financial misconduct um, and things related to market behavior. There's actually been more of a muted focus on other types of conduct risk. Things like workplace bullying or sexual misconduct haven't been as much front and center. So moving on to Singapore, the uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore introduced um, the guidelines on individual accountability and conduct last September. This was after a delay during the peak of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, This regime is also similar to the manager in charge regime in that it is a disclosure-based regime and regulated firms are required to identify as well as outline areas of responsibility of senior managers so that the Singaporean regulator has written confirmation from firms of who is responsible for what. Um, In Singapore, it's a especially important to note that given the recent crypto meltdown, um, there is an increased focus on potential market misconduct. Singapore itself has sought to establish itself as a fintech hub that investors can have confidence in. So market misconduct naturally discredits that. And the MAS has said that they will be, quote unquote, brutal on any kind of financial misconduct that arises. In Australia, I'm aware that Australia introduced the uh, Banking Executive Accountability Regime, BEAR, in short, a few years ago in 2018. The regime imposes standards of conduct for directors and senior executives at banks. It's since been expanded to cover senior managers and all types of financial services firms as well. But there hasn't been very active enforcement or um, regulators haven't been very vocal about how they're using the BEAR regime to police markets. And outside Asia, in um, in Canada, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, which is the federal bank and insurer regulator, they focused more on collective accountability of the board as a whole, as opposed to focusing on personal liability of individual directors, individual senior managers. In recent years, um, OSFI has updated corporate governance rules to reflect this approach, and they've also reflected this approach um, in updates made to their other guidelines on everything ranging from operational resilience to regulatory compliance management and cybersecurity as well. These guidelines have all placed more of a greater emphasis on collective responsibility of the board as a whole. Thank you. Yes. And and for those of you who are uh, Canadian based, OSFI E13 will be all too familiar to you on, on that basis. Um, Linz, if we bounce back in, in this way, um, SMCR, Senior Management Certification Regime, first started coming in in 2016. I would suggest a distinct lack of enforcement ever since. So where are we on all of that? I mean, 
I know Ireland is planning to do something similar, but again, delayed. So here and hereabouts. Yes, Susanna. So, of yes, the senior managers and certificates is the is the is the original. Um, I would argue that maybe other jurisdictions are doing better with actually using it. Um, but then, if I take a step back, the regulators are in the UK. So that's the PRA and the the Prudential Regulation Authority and the um, Financial Conduct Authority. Um, who are tasked uh, with joint responsibility for supervising this um, and enforcing this, they are very much of the opinion that the mapping exercise that went on when this, uh, um, as as Helen has described, um, that's gone on, follows these regimes uh, being um, implemented, has actually made senior executives more accountable um, because they're now like they've got it in black and white what they are expected to do. That said, there is an absolute split between what the regulators uh, think the regime is for and what the law, law lawmakers who put it in place after the um, financial crisis uh, expect it to have done. And they very much have. You know, this is this has come up. Every time there's a financial services bill going through Parliament, this comes up. Um, and of course, we're about to get the Financial Services and Markets Act, the biggest rewrite of the original FISMA um, in a generation, is about to come to Parliament. Um, so I expect it to come up there again, and, and maybe we'll see some, some, some tinkering around it. But just um, a couple of things on actually the enforcement. So yes, you're right. You're absolutely right, Susanna. We have not seen... Um, huge swathes of senior managers um, being held accountable. Uh, Some uh, work I did with our colleague Rachel, um, and I will put the link to this article in the chat, um, sorry, in the show notes. Um, At the moment, there are 35 open cases um, against senior senior managers. This is a response to a freedom of information request. there had been 50, there's been 54 in total, which isn't really a lot given that we're six years into this regime. Um, but then when we questioned uh, the the low number, we were told by the FCA that actually because of COVID, which is understandable, resources have been taken away from enforcement. And so, you know, that has been reflected in the overall number of cases. Um, Ours isn't the only, we're not the only people looking at this area. And I just want to quote um, uh, Ben Blackard-Ord, uh, who um, was the uh, chief executive of the compliance consultancy Boval until uh, recently. Um, he, he said, you know, with such low enforcement statistics, it brings into question SMCR's role as an effective deterrent for poor behavior by senior management. And, and I think that's fair. I think that's, that's, that's fair. And you will remember from the last time we discussed uh, this accountability regime, I'd found out that the Bank of England doesn't even uh, so the, what we're talking about here is when the regulator themselves does enforcement or does investigations. The firms, there is a level below that where firms are supposed to be uh, uh, reporting when they have taken action against accountable individuals in the firm, be that, you know, pay clawback or, um, or you know, or, you know, right everything up until to firing them. Um, it turns out that the PRA does not centralise that information. It, it, um, 
and they couldn't produce it. They, they, they couldn't produce it, which was, to me, mind-boggling that um, you're supposed to be on top of this and you don't produce those numbers. Um, I just just before I move off and, and move on to Ireland, um, I just thought I'd give you a flavour of the SMF uh, positions that have been investigated. So in 2016, uh, there were two cases for... Uh, SMF1, which is a chief executive, and one for SMS17, which is the money laundering. Um, there were six cases in 2017, 13 in 2018, 13 in uh, 2019, 14 in 2020. And then, as we said, the COVID hit, and that's inflect- reflected um, what has gone on. Overwhelmingly, um, the, the, the functions are... Um, there's um you you see a lot of sms 16s sms 17s sms 18s um and also uh, a couple of um senior branch uh, so uh third country branch uh people in there that's sms 21 so it's it's a bit it's a bit of a mix um the other thing i want to mention about the cm uh, the smr um is that despite it's seemingly not delivering heads on sticks or heads on poles as the lawmakers had intended. It, it March of it is just um, unrelenting. So we are we are about to, you know we've seen it. It started with the with the with the banks. Uh, we we've seen it roll through asset management um, and into insurance. Um, we're now going to see it rolled out to. Um, to much to credit possibly credit rating agencies to um recognized investment exchanges you know it, it, it's 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 getting bigger and the reason i i mentioned that is if we flip to what ireland is planning to do with its um individual um accountability framework which encompasses a senior executive accountability regime which is sia um the the most recent update on that is from April, which was a pre pre scrutiny uh, report from a, the committee of the Irish Parliament, and there they are very much sort of following the UK uh, model, and they want the regime widened out. So they want it to cover credit unions, they want it to cover reinsurers, they want to cover captives. So, so and and that's from the start. So, I guess what I'm saying is the these regimes seem to be getting ever wider um, while at the same time we're not seeing numbers of um, or any senior managers actually held accountable. I just want to caveat that with one thing. We have seen, as we move into the cost of living crisis, we have seen a lot of warnings and DCO letters um which is as tough as it gets in the UK as a as a we are watching you from the from the regulator in the lending space and of course if you flip back to the misconduct around the financial crisis and the origins of the um SMCR it was very much in the lending space and so we will it will be interesting to see if if something goes wrong, heaven forbid, if something goes wrong this time and people are dis- uh, customers are disadvantaged or SME businesses are disadvantaged or abused in the way they were the last time, I would very much expect that the regulators would have to deliver 
senior managers um, for for that one. Finally, just before we leave Europe, Susanna, if I can uh, go split over to the ECB, um, which of course has its um, fitness and proprietary regime. Um, there's been some movement there uh, in the in the last year. They 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 redid uh, their fit and proper guidelines, and these are for board members at financial institutions. Um, and the ECB is responsible for assessing the suitability there. Um, I, there was an interesting speech by Frank Elderman, Elderson, sorry, uh, last month, where he was um, he, he is very much uh, focusing on the collective suitability, diversity, and effective functioning of boards, um, and 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 he was saying that they they assess there they very much take a view of how the um, the board works as a whole, how it functions, how effective it is in overseeing the institution. And it reminded me a bit of, um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Dutch Central Bank's work in this uh, area, where it actually goes and sits in board board meetings of the banks and has been known to actually recommend that this uh, this board member or that board member perhaps has a bit more training um, in the past. And so it's just a different way of doing it, but very much, I guess, you know, individuals are in the spotlight whatever your senior managers are in the spotlight and are being assessed across Europe it just I guess it just maybe isn't well isn't there in enforcement numbers. Thank you yes and and just to sort of weave in a bit more on the European expectations there's recently been some bank governance guidelines that came out that as you might expect, was talking about composition and diversity and skills and all of those sorts of things. But they made a very, very big point about behaviour and decision-making. And they also made a very strong point about the regulatory expectation that there would be what they phrased concrete consequences for imprudence. Now, we have yet to see precisely what those concrete consequences should be or indeed are. But you can begin to see that the regulators around the world are very much, you are a board member, you are responsible for this, make sure that you understand what you're doing and you're taking the right sorts of decisions in the right sorts of ways. And and I'd illustrate that particular point actually coming out of Dubai, the Dubai Financial Services Authority, and they are the financial services regulator in the Dubai International Financial Centre. And they have absolutely no compunction about holding individuals to account where they have not fulfilled what they are supposed to be doing as senior managers or senior executive officers. And in earlier in, in July, uh, the DFSA banned a senior executive officer for a lack of competence. Now, On one level, the DFSA banning somebody is not actually, you know, a headline because they do it whenever they feel they need to when somebody has not behaved appropriately. This case, I think, is quite interesting on two levels. One, the DFSA reiterated very, very clearly that as senior executive officer, you are responsible for the day-to-day activities of the firm and you are accountable for the day-to-day activities of your firm. And for this particular case, um, the person involves a chap called Trevor Conway, who was Senior Executive Officer officer at Tradition Dubai Limited. And 
the regulator there made really quite clear it's not alleging that Mr Conway breached any specific DFSA legislation, but rather his behaviour and his decision-making, we're back to that again, was held to be improper. And his decision-making and both his actions and his inactions led the regulator to say he's no longer fit and proper and he is incompetent and therefore he is banned from being an SEO in the DIFC. So I think understanding your obligations as whatever role you are in a financial services firm and the regulatory expectations around that and to be clear, you don't have to break, you know, rules one, two, three, and seven. That that's not how these regulatory regimes work. It is you are. It is incumbent on you to put the right culture, the right conduct risk, the right approach to everything in place, and then make good decisions, good, well-informed, risk-aware decisions. So there are lots and lots of examples of regulators holding individuals to account. I, I caveat that slightly with the UK example where we're not quite there yet, but I'm sure we will be. Um, so given that's the shape of the world we are living in, it's, we're sort of going to move on to what practical things firms have done about this. And to do have that conversation, we're very much going to reference the cost of compliance report, which we spoke about in last week's podcast. And there, I'll just run through the little shopping list, the practical changes that firms put in place to manage potential personal liability include enhanced regulatory training programs, deployment of technology, increased use of attestations, increased remote monitoring of staff that you absolutely might think of when we've been through the pandemic and flexible working and so on, a requirement to have a personal archive of evidence, and the use of a company-wide decision decision register. So picking up just on on one particular point of that, Helen, personal archives of evidence, is that what we're seeing in Asia as one of the tools people are using? So Susanna, this hasn't been as widely talked about, I guess, compared to maybe the UK or other jurisdictions. Um, Regulators certainly haven't said a lot about personal archive or giving guidance on how to keep one or what to keep in it. Uh, I think that senior managers are still kind of on their own in figuring this out and figuring, do they actually need one? Uh, Some may not think that they would actually need one or that they're senior enough. But, you know, again, if you are a responsible officer or a senior manager that is covered by one of these disclosure-based regimes, either in Hong Kong or Singapore, you really do need to be thinking about your own personal archive that is independent of the company. And you do have to think about what goes in it, um, how you will maintain it and and how you will access it. Um, I think that, you know, it's still very early stages over here. Linz? Yeah, I just, I just wanted to say, I mean, I know it it seems like we're, we're, we're shaming the UK system here, but I mean, I am regularly informed by lawyers who deal with uh, investigations that increasingly well, actually, always now, when almost always, when the when the regulators launch an investigation, it's not just against the firm. They will have used that map to identify the individual who should have been in charge, and that person will be under investigation as well. So, to the point about personal archives and evidence, and may maybe the reason we're not seeing, um, you know, those individual enforcement cases come through is because 
you know, the personal archives are actually working to protect senior managers, uh, you know, as as they should. So I, I just wanted to sort of maybe balance out some of what we were saying by by uh, saying that maybe, you know, the, the personal archives are are working. Yeah. And I, I would weave into that also. There are other reasons to have that personal archive. And that personally, I would thoroughly recommend having a personal archive to protect yourself and that's not just to protect yourself against potential regulatory action. That is also to protect yourself against your firm and to use the, the colloquial throwing you onto a bus for whatever reason. Um, it's, that is sadly possible, if not likely, all over the world. Um, and, you know, for instance, in the US, a firm gets cooperation credit if it says, oh, well, Joe Bloggs was responsible for this. Um, so... Having that personal archive, I would suggest, is a really very sensible idea. Now, it's not necessarily as simple as that because there may well be proprietary information there, potentially non-public sensitive information in there. Um, One of the things firms will, and indeed those senior people, will need to think about is if a senior person moves on, what happens to that personal archive? And as part of any exit agreement, whatever shape or form or indeed uh, heat and light there is around an exit, I would suggest you need to have the conversation about that personal archive because it's no, it no longer is useful or whatever if that senior manager can no longer access this once they've left because it is deemed proprietary information. So understand how incredibly useful it can be as an individual but also understand you need to maintain access to that and have it built into any exit agreement or if it's enormously acrimonious at least have your lawyer write a letter and say you have my personal archive you know that sort of thing understand its value now the the other element that we're beginning to see extensively I suppose and this very much picks up on what Helen has been saying about where the regulators are looking is the use and indeed abuse of personal devices and one of the many benefits let me put it that way of technology is things are trackable and traceable and can be discovered so Helen regulators looking to make sure that the market manipulation, this good market conduct is all happening and the use and indeed potential abuse of devices. What are we seeing? So there's there's definitely been an ebb and flow. I know that, you know, a few years ago, regulators really started focusing on things like Bluebird chat and kind of office instant messaging. Um, following that, a lot of people have started turning to you know, encrypted apps like Signal or Telegram, thinking that they're 100% secure and and they're protected, which is not always the case because the devil is in the detail. Even if you do use a one of those private apps or encrypted apps, your security is only as good as whoever you're talking to and their security because, you know, you can delete all your messages or, or everything like that. But if they don't delete their messages or they save screenshots, say, like for their personal archive or something like that, then, um, you know, you're not as safe as you think you are. Um, And so that really needs to be something that people need to consider. Linz, from this this side of the world, as it were, are we in the same sort of boat with all of that? You know, we have seen, you know, lots of warnings about the use of WhatsApp. So that's not even sophisticated, um, you know, and we have seen 
regulatory um, action I think in the US um, for people using WhatsApp. So, I mean, you know, regulators are not stupid. They use these technologies themselves. And, you know, as you say, um, Helen and Susanna, I completely agree. These things are are not um, as uh, anonymous or as hidden as the users often like to think. And uh, it was the previous head of uh, markets, I think, at the FCA who said that, you know, they have the capability to look at every single transaction and work back from from that. So, um, you know, it, you know they, they can join up the dots, you know, working backwards the other way as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting one to, to watch, a space to watch. Yeah, the um, regulators have almost, I wouldn't say it's boasting, regulators have made clear or increasingly clear how much they can now see. In the US, the CFTC has said pretty much in words of one syllable, we can see everything. You know, do not assume we don't know exactly what is going on in the marketplace. And they have got the data and the transparency to understand all the trading that is happening in their particular marketplace, which is terrific on one level. I, I, I'm about to be even more cynical than usual here. What appears to be happening there is there have been absolutely dozens and dozens of fines for spoofing and market manipulation and front running and this, that and the other. And... I mean, even down to, you know, a mom and pop shop kind of thing, really quite small ones. They're making the point they can see everything and they will, you know, punish bad behaviour. But to come back to Lindsay's point about credible deterrence, because there have now been so many fines for spoofing and so on and the CFTC marketplaces, it's almost now seen as a cost of doing business. I mean, it's probably a shorter list who hasn't been fined. So... People just pay the fines and carry on. I I think there is a question there about credible deterrence. And I think to bring the argument back around to personal liability, it may be that as a regulator, regulators like the CFTC may think a little bit more about the individual accountability, because if what they are trying to do is actually deter or prevent the bad behaviour in the marketplace, I'm not completely sure that their current approach is necessarily achieving that because there's just so many of them, you know, and it just doesn't seem to be deterring anything at all, um, which is an interesting place to be, I think, if you're a regulator, because if you're so good at being able to see everything, how how do you make credible deterrence then work? It, it's a really, it's a, it's a conversation for another time. Let's leave it that way. Um, Helen, just popping back to you for a moment, we've got Hong Kong, we've got Singapore, anywhere else in Asia talking about individual liability, accountability, um, or are they very much looking at Hong Kong and Singapore to be the leaders on this? Well, Hong Kong and Singapore have come up with specific frameworks for senior manager liability, but that doesn't mean that other regions aren't thinking about it and they aren't looking at it. Um, Places like Malaysia, they're wrapping it into a broader focus on corporate governance with an emphasis on senior liability and the the expectation that senior managers and board members really do set the culture and, and you know set the tone for compliance in their companies. And if something goes wrong, it is their responsibility. 
Thank you. Yes. And gosh, and as ever, we are running out of time. Um, Takeaways from compliance officers. Um, From my perspective, we have very much spoken about regulators as the sort of root cause of personal liability for senior managers. And this was a topic of a, a previous podcast, but do remember there are other sources of personal liability. There are those associated with reputational risk. There are those associated with wrongdoing, in inverted commas, outside the financial services space. Um, I mean, the one example here in the UK, which has been cited several times, is Jess Staley, who was the chief executive of Barclays, and his apparent connections to Epstein. He is no longer the chief executive of Barclays. Um, Be aware that there are other sources of personal liability and things that happen outside of the world of financial services may well end up impacting within your role within the world of financial services. Lynn's takeaways from your perspective? Um, just, I've got two. Um, I, despite what I've said about, uh, you know, the lack of in, in enforcement, um, I think it will be interesting to see, because the SMCR, there has to be a senior manager responsible for climate. And with the current uh, trend for greenwashing, um, investigations and actions. I do wonder if, you know, how long before we see a senior manager um, hold forward for um, greenwashing or lack of action on climate. So that's one. The other one, um, which is kind of a bit more uh, nuanced, is Ashley Elder, who is currently the chief executive um, of the uh, uh, authority, financial authority in Hong Kong, is going to be the chair of the FCA in the UK from January 2023. He is, it's the first time we'll have had a chief executive, um, somebody who's run a, run a regulator come in in that chair role. And it will be interesting to see whether his arrival changes the focus on, um, you know, senior managers, you know, if we, if we take what, uh, drawing on what Helen had said at the, at the top of, of this podcast about how the regulators uh, are always kind of always know who is um, who's supposed to have been in charge and, you know, and look at that. So it will be interesting just to see if we, we see a, a, a tightening or a toughening um, of the senior managers regime once um, Ashley Older arrives. Thank you. Yes. Um, Helen. I just have um, a couple of thoughts on personal archives. I think that senior managers that are subject to disclosure-based or mapping regimes for liability need to be really aware of what the firm is disclosing to regulators and, you know, ensure that their personal archive aligns with this and covers kind of all the functions that they're being held accountable for. As Lindsay pointed out, you know, having a good personal archive really could make the difference between being held liable and, and, you know, not being liable. And that that could be that could make a really big difference, especially in jurisdictions where regulators are focusing on serious market misconduct and uh, financial crime offenses, things like bribery. Um, they often carry very heavy penalties in several jurisdictions in Asia, and also could involve criminal liability. So uh, definitely, the personal archive is uh, one area where senior managers really need to be putting a lot of thought and planning into. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. And thank you for listening to Series 5. Hope you found it all interesting and useful. 
as ever, I'll include the links to the pieces referenced in the podcast in the episode notes, and that'll also include the cost of compliance report for 2022, which we referenced. We've opened the survey for our annual FinTech, RegTech and Role of Compliance report. So if you would like to take part in that, the link for that will also be in the episode notes. Usual link in there also for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. Last but not least, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Have a good summer. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.